Medical schools need a place to put their graduates. You know, it, it looks good for medical schools to have a 100% or close to it um, first time match rate. So there are some kind of organizational politics to take into account. Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Workforce Podcast, where we explore the business and profession of emergency medicine. I'm Leon Edelman, an emergency physician and the founder of IV Clinicians. We are really excited today to have Dr. Jess Murphy here with us. She's the EMRA president and a real leader in um, making sure that the future of emergency medicine is at least as good as the past. Um, Jess has been um, an advocate, really a fierce advocate for emergency physicians and emergency patients. Um, the topic that we're going to be delving into today is the 2023 emergency medicine match. As you've probably uh, read about, maybe experienced yourself, um, the 2023 match was a challenge for emergency medicine, a real eye-opener for the profession. So let's get started. Jess, can you tell us a little bit about your journey to emergency medicine? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, uh, like you said, my name is Jessica Adkins Murphy, but everyone calls me Jess. I'm an emergency medicine resident at the University of Kentucky, and I'm president of the Emergency Medicine Residents Association. Um, I guess a little about my background. I'm from Lexington, Kentucky, where I currently am in residency. In undergrad, I was a journalism and Spanish double major. <laughs> so um, we did a lot of broadcast journalism at that time, and so I find this stuff really fun. Um, that's part of why I got involved in EMRA, because last year I served as editor-in-chief of EM Resident, the Emergency Medicine Residents Association publication. Um, but I was really attracted to emergency medicine in general because of the, um, the acuity of patients and the intersections that it has with public health, the honor that it is to serve patients of all ages, um, of all backgrounds, and really be able to provide care without worrying about a lot of the um, kind of barriers that come with insurance and things like that. Now, as I've gotten into it, I've started to realize we don't escape those things. And in fact, we um, have to deal with a lot of issues ac across medicine, corporatization of medicine, the issues with like scope of practice, access to care. So uh, I think it's turned out to be a much more complicated um, world to practice in than it seemed as a med student. I cer I certainly have learned more than I ever expected as IMRA president um, in terms of health policy and things like that, and uh, really didn't expect to have to deal with this um, match issue when I <laughs> when I ran for IMRA president. It. So um, that's been incredibly educational and instructive for that too, um, especially in workforce issues. Awesome. So I'm going to start with a challenging question. On your on your EMRA profile, I think this is from last year, you answered the question, what is something people don't know about you with, my family has a time-honored tradition of going squirrel hunting every year. <laughs> I've, I've even cleaned, cooked, and eaten squirrel meat. That's, yeah. a free, that's as free range as it gets. So uh, <laughs> yeah. I don't even know what the question is, but tell us about Yeah, just about question that. mark. Um, 
that's kind of my go-to fun fact because I think uh, people that have met me at like a medical conference, it's like the last thing they would think of me in my, when I'm wearing my biz cash outfits. Um, but yeah, my family goes squirrel hunting every year. Um, my family is originates from Eastern Kentucky. I'm like a city kid from, from the big city of Lexington, but yeah, it's just something that we do. It's 100% primitive camping. And basically we shoot squirrel meat. I mean, you're out in like the woods, so it's not like these are neighborhood (laughs) squirrels, but yeah. And you clean them yourself and gut them and grill them up. So I have eaten them before. It's the Um, the fish of the land. Yeah, exactly. Um, But yeah, these aren't your neighborhood like park squirrels. It's it's like more um, delicious. than Yeah, more of an outdoorsy thing to do. Um, (laughs) So on the topic of outdoorsy, let's talk about the 2023 emergency medicine residency match. So the background here is that 18% of um, emergency f- medicine residency spots went unfilled this year in the match. So that was 554 spots. Mm-hmm. Um, you wrote a really insightful piece, um, what what I've heard from multiple people as the most insightful piece about the match itself and and where we go from here as a uh, as a specialty. So I'll start with why you felt um, a response piece from EMRA was even necessary. Absolutely. So um, EMRA is the largest and oldest independent resident organization in the world. Um, We have 19,000 members, about 9,000 of those are residents and 4,000 of those are medical students. So we actually have a really great resource of medical student members who I've been asking for the past year, really, um, ever since we kind of had the 219 unfilled spots last year just for their input, like why are medical students hesitant to join the specialty? Um, And we also have a really strong voice when it comes to advocating for residency standards. And we were already in this process last year when the ACGME began soliciting opinions for, um, you know, whether we need to increase our procedure numbers and requirements for faculty and things like that. So we've already been thinking about this um, for over a year. And I think it's our responsibility to share the perspectives of medical students because they're driving a lot of this issue. You know, we want to hear from them what's what's causing them to be hesitant to join the specialty. And on the other side, we also have a strong enough voice to talk to programs um, on an organizational level, like CORD, the Council of Residency Directors in Emergency Medicine, mm-hmm. um, and ASEP, who um, we see as our, our really strong partners in um, – big, large-scale advocacy, like um, advocating to the government and advocating to large hospital groups like HCA when it comes to this issue. So it just seemed like, it seemed like our responsibility to our members, really. And you mentioned that this wasn't among your expectations <laughs> when you started um, the journey to being the, the EMRA president. Can you tell us a little bit about how emergency medicine did in the match in the years before, uh, before COVID? Yeah, I mean, we saw it coming for the last year, but it has been impressive just how um, profound the unfilled spots have increased. So for years, um, applicants to emergency medicine have increased in number and have always remained a bit higher than the rising number of um, positions in emergency medicine residency programs. But unfilled spots, um, because of that separation, were under 30 
per year for over 15 mm-hmm. years. Um, applicants to EM peaked in 2021, and that's, of course, when people were outside banging pots and pans and celebrating us as healthcare heroes. Um, right. You know, then it was a really attractive specialty to go into. But I think over the course of the next two years, applicants in EM have actually fallen and now are approaching mm-hmm. 2017 levels, while positions in emergency medicine residency programs have continued to increase. Essentially, that supply-demand mismatch is what has resulted in the 219 unfilled spots last year right. and 554 unfilled spots this year, which put us at the second most unfilled specialty, I think only second to maybe Rad Onk. That really set off alarm bells across the specialty, and I think our response was that our, our focus should not necessarily be at treating the numbers but really Mm -hmm. looking at what are the underlying causes that have contributed to this and which one of those kind of deserve our attention. You know, it's kind of like Dr. Um, Brian Carmody says, you know, you don't want to be treating sinus tack when the patient has sepsis. So we really need to look at the underlying causes of this and and addressing those from a systemic level where we can. For a second there, I thought you were talking about hypertension in the, in the ER. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Don't just treat the numbers, treat the patient. Uh, Exactly. That's great. So you break your analysis down as as you've said into supply and demand issues. Let's let's start with the demand side. So the the medical students um, choosing to go into to emergency medicine. What factors would you say have caused medical students over the last two years to uh, some medical students to not apply to emergency medicine and the total number to be decreased? The one that gets top billing is certainly the workforce um, and specifically the workforce projections that there's going to be a surplus of about 8,000 positions by 2030, um, according to the 2021 report. That is a concern for medical students. I think at least the ones that I spoke to haven't, you know, really delved into the data themselves. They get this impression from the headlines and from even advisors who are not in emergency medicine and probably don't have the full context past the headline. Mm. Um, but still, that does leave an impression on a medical student who oftentimes has like six figures of debt um, and is worried about job security. But interestingly, we've also um, heard from medical students that at times, sometimes it feels like the workforce is so easy to jump to and such like a, an attention-grabbing um, cause that we kind of miss all the other things that they're actually seeing on shift. Because the residents now, many of them are still finding jobs. These are projections for 2030. They're seeing on Mm -hmm. shift um, burnout, boarding, various kind of operational and bureaucratic challenges that are making the ED kind of a more miserable place to work. And some of them even reported actively being told by the residents and attendings that they work with on shift to choose another specialty. So I think that's where it's extremely concerning. And, and the numbers kind of reflect that too. I mean, we have um, about a 39% decrease in MD applicants from uh, 2021. It's about 25% in DOs and a little less in IMGs. And I don't say that to pit MD students against you know everyone else or anything like that. It's more, I think it raises some concerns that MD students historically have been the ones with more access to mentorship Mm-hmm. third-year EM clerkship rotations. And we're not sure right now if they're showing an even steeper drop-off because they miss those opportunities and exposure to the emergency medicine interest groups and things like that during the pandemic, 
or if instead they're having more exposure to emergency departments and you know actively seeing the the burnout and boarding and all of that um, at play. So I think that's concerning, but it also illuminates some possible solutions as well. I think you're you're exactly right. Um, so for some reason, I I get today's hospitalist magazine. It just shows up. Um, and the cover of today's Hospitalist magazine this month is emergency department boarding. And the subtitle is something along the lines of, are, are you going down to the ER and seeing patients in their waiting room? Right. So if the hospitalists are worried about seeing admissions in the waiting room, like it has trickled pretty far to, um, uh, yeah. to the ED problems really have, have trickled pretty far Field. Well, the ED, I mean, our experience with boarding is like the canary in the coal mine. I mean, we're going to be the first to be treated as the release valve for the congestion that happens so much further down the line. It's really hard to find emergency department solutions to boarding um, because really it's in large part caused by difficulty finding home health and acute rehab and, and all the things that get patients moving and get their care de-escalated. But instead, we have patients taking beds there that um, are ready to be de-escalated. So I think it's great that the hospitalists are are really concerned. I think that's part of why ASAP has been yeah. raising the flag is like, you know, we, we can't provide emergency care and we also don't really have the keys to solve this right now. So that's great. Yeah, totally agree. So let's talk a little bit about the supply side and then we'll go into the, the solution. So a lot of people on, so if you, if you look at uh, the Facebook groups or Reddit, a lot of the response to the match had to do with, oh, they're for-profit uh, hospital companies creating lots of residencies to make money off of the residents. Uh, tell us a little bit about the, the growth in emergency medicine residencies and where that's come from. Yeah, absolutely. So it's clear that there are financial incentives for hospitals to open emergency department res- and to open emergency medicine residency programs um, or rapidly expand their existing programs. So in staffing emergency departments, residents, even at face value, have lower salaries than PAs, NPs, and certainly EM attendings, not only because their salaries are lower, but also because their salaries are paid in large part by government funding. That in and of itself, I think, essentially raises the profitability of an emergency medicine residency program. Um, And for-profit companies uh, like the hospital, like HCA, have been implicated in this rapid expansion because of that. And there's some legitimacy there, absolutely. I mean, they have um, 16 HCA-affiliated emergency medicine residency programs right now, which is more than any other hospital group. Interestingly, though, they only have opened seven of the 57 new emergency medicine residency programs in the last five years. So though they're an important player in this, Shutting down HCA-affiliated residency programs is not necessarily going to solve this issue. And um, there's not really a great mechanism for doing that right now, which we can discuss a little later. But for-profit hospitals in general have grown at an alarming rate in the last 20 years. I think they've increased on the order of like 4% of residency programs to approximately 30% are now associated with for-profit hospitals which is really concerning to advocates against the corporate practice of medicine. Now, you're exactly right that this is a bigger problem than than just for-profit hospitals, 
but they are part of the challenge. Um, if you want to read more, if anybody wants to read more about how similar nonprofits are to for-profits, there's a whole series in the in the New York Times about um, Bon Secours and about Advocate, uh, Advocate Aurora. Um, a lot of nonprofit hospitals are looking to make sure that the bottom line is taken care of in the same way that uh, for-profit hospitals are. And the numbers bear it out that that most of these new programs really are uh, they're from nonprofits in addition to profit. Absolutely. Profits. And and quality also doesn't fall um, completely on lines of uh, for-profit or nonprofit. I mean, some of the strongest um, training facilities that, you know, we think of like Indiana University and Mayo Clinic and Cleveland Clinic have relationships with private equity in one way or the other. So that's not necessarily to say that they're staffed by large um, contract management groups, um, but it's not as easy as saying that all these private equity um, affiliated residency programs need to be closed or, or are to blame for this, this trend. So let's jump into those solutions because you, your solutions that you came up with, I think were ambitious, but also realistic. I think there, there's some folks that, that have ambitious solutions and, and they aren't really going to happen. And some folks that are just sort of saying, well, is just how it's going to be. We're going to wait for for the the cycle to to work its way out. So so let's jump into your um, recommendations. You you start with actually with expectation management, <laughs> which again is a great emergency medicine uh, concept. Can you tell us about kind of why we shouldn't expect a a quick solution to this? I mean, it's reasonable to want a quick solution. We are used to seeing that in patients that we resuscitate well. We see them turn around immediately. We want quick um, improvements. So we all expect that and want that. And um, when we don't see that happening within the span of a year or so, it's easy to point fingers and say, this is you know your fault. And But I think we need to understand that when we've seen this, these kinds of fluctuations happen in the anesthesia world, it takes a decade to reverse these kinds of trends. So it's going to take patience and it's going to take working together. But I do believe that there are things that we can all do in our own lane to do what we do best to treat these underlying issues. And that starts on a personal level. So every emergency physician who is active on social media or works with students has something they can do to strengthen the specialty. And I would say that's primarily by celebrating the day-to-day work that we do um, for patients. Many of us were attracted to the specialty because of that face-to-face connection you get with a patient on the worst day of their lives and being able to make that better. And that's still here. So I think if we can celebrate the things that we love about EM in person and online, that's going to do a lot of the work for us. I think also continuing mentorship and education and trying to make the medical student experience in emergency departments as strong as it can be and as accessible as it can be. It's kind of strange to me that EM rotations are treated as like a cherry on top in med school curriculum rather than something that's integral and essential as internal medicine and surgery training are. So I think those are really important. Got it. Let's let's spend a little bit of time on, on the social media side because I, I think you're right that um, it's become kind of cool to bash your own specialty on <laughs> social media. Talk talk a little bit about if you were going to kind of 
frame how to approach what you put on EM docs or Reddit? Like how should ER doctors who, who do care about their profession, how should they think about that? I think it's really difficult because um, I certainly don't want us to have to pretend that everything's fine and to you know mm-hmm. wear our rose-colored glasses when we talk about really important issues that need to be addressed, like burnout and corporatization of medicine. Like those things are important and scary. Mm-hmm. At the same time, however, now is a time that we could really focus instead on reframing those in solution-oriented ways. I think we've made really great strides in being transparent about our like mental health struggles when we see difficult things in the ER and um, sounding the alarm when we don't have you know fair treatment of emergency physicians. I just want us to be aware that medical students are hearing those messages too. And that is in part why we're having a downturn in applications. So I think it's kind of subtle, but just flavoring those um, messages with a solution-oriented approach and maybe in separate channels, not not necessarily combating those um, social media communications with positivity. I mean, those I don't want to silence anyone's experience. But in right. separate channels, also celebrating the wins, celebrating solutions and leaders in our specialty who still love their specialty after 20 years of practicing and mm-hmm. um, are actively doing things to make it into a better specialty to practice in and ultimately better care for our patients. That's what it's all about. That's that's a really great balance. Let's take a break to tell you about our sponsor, Ivy Clinicians. Full disclosure here, I'm Ivy's founder. Both as a practicing physician and ED medical director, navigating the job market felt like going back to the days of classifieds and smoke-filled rooms. Who staffs which ED? I don't know. Who should I contact there? I don't know. What's it like to work there? You get the point. So our team at Ivy created the Zillow of the emergency medicine job market. With Ivy, you can find all 5,549 EDs in the United States, filter them by your preferences, and connect with the right employers, all for free. Your data is secure with Ivy. You pick which employers can see your profile. Sign up now at ivyclinicians.io. When Ivy connects you with your next emergency medicine job, we will even send you a bottle of champagne and a bag of 321 coffee beans to celebrate. That's ivyclinicians.io. All right, back to the show. Um, so one one thing that is being said a decent amount on social media is why doesn't somebody just close down these excess residencies? Um, Emra has done a lot of work with the ACGME about residency requirements and things like uh, protected time for for faculty. Can you talk a little bit about the ACGME process for uh, for residency regulation and and what can and can they, can they not do about the number of residencies? Absolutely. So the ACGME, and this is something we really tried to educate our members on through this statement. The ACGME is focused on quality in order to mm-hmm. protect patients. That's the underlying mission to the ed- medical education they support. Um, and 
Secondarily, you know, they want it to be uh, an appropriate training environment for trainees, um, but that's also for patient safety um, in terms of work hours and things like that. The ACGME is not particularly interested in workforce concerns. And in fact, due to um, concerns with antitrust violations and, and lawsuits in the past, they actively avoid considering workforce um, factors like medical student applicant interest and job market saturation in their residency standards or in any closures or approved openings of residency programs. Um, And I can talk a little bit about why that is and where that came from, if you'd like. So in 2002, um, a group of residents actually sued the AAMC um, in a class action lawsuit saying that their wages were unfairly suppressed. Um, And Mm. through the match, and through the ACGME controlling kind of the number and pro- of programs and positions available, that that limited their ability to advocate for themselves for more fair wages and things like that. If this class action lawsuit had gone through, there could have been payouts for all residents. Um, and that would have been mm-hmm. on the order of like almost a billion dollars. So they not only sued the AAMC and the ACGME, but named like 30 other players in um, hospital systems across America um, to uh, be potential payees in that situation. Now, just as the lawsuit was proceeding, the ACGME and other other advocacy groups in medicine um, pushed Congress to essentially create a loophole in antitrust regulations that... Um, exempted the match and uh, medical training, mm. graduate medical education, from antitrust violations, saying that this is an uh, this has been shown to be an effective system in um, supporting our trainees and essentially serving patients. So risk outweighs benefit, essentially in the match. Um, that's still been challenged, but not successfully since then. But it did teach the ACGME a lesson, um, you could say. And I'm certainly not a spokesman for them, but <laughs> but um, it, it we can tell that it, it it taught them a lesson that they need to avoid workforce considerations at all cost or come under fire for being a workforce regulator as they um, as they were were named to be in that lawsuit. So that brings us to some solutions. People have said the ACGME needs to shut down for-profit training sites because they're training residents for the wrong reasons and and these kinds of allegations. ACGME is not going to do that, but they do have a role in inadvertently controlling the growth of other specialties. So people have said, Mm -hmm. why does ortho and, and germ, why do they grow so slowly, whereas EM programs are growing so rapidly? Well, an orthopedic surgery resident has to complete between 1,000 and 3,000 cases by the time they graduate. They have to complete 200 pediatric cases and a number of orthopedic oncology cases. So you just can't have that spring up in you know whatever community hospital across across America. Not only that, but you have to build out all of their. Um, kind of surgical procedural spaces, and you have to be able to recruit mm-hmm. the attendings to support that. An emergency department is a lot easier because um, you have that in just about any hospital that's already in existence. Um, and then the emergency medicine training requirements are a lot easier. Um, a graduate of an emergency medicine residency program is expected to have completed 
45 adult medical resuscitations and 35 intubations, wow. just as a couple examples. That that's that sounds like a month. Yeah, it sounds like a month in a high. <laughs> exactly. Fortunately, most of us have yeah. completed that by the time we are done with intern year. You know, at least right. um, if not sooner. But those requirements are pretty lax, and that's made it a lot easier to grow these numbers quickly. So the ACGME is actively looking at these just because they do periodic reviews of specialty by specialty. Um, and we actually already advocated last year that these program requirements be increased. But they're never going to increase these um, residency programs based on market concerns. Right. How receptive do you think the ACGME is to um, organized emergency medicine saying, hey, like, it takes way more than 45 resuscitations in a residency to be a good emergency physician. Well, um, they, they like data. And we do have some studies that right. show that more like 90 to 100 intubations are required to have some proficiency. Um, and that's just the number of exposures that you need to not only be a, a proficient at the, the normal intubation, but also to... Um, get enough exposures to have that horrible GI bleed actively hemorrhaging kind right. of intubation. So like, just as one example, they, they like data. We also have to think about the fact that there are going to be people, um, there are going to be organizations in opposition to these changes. Mm. Medical schools actually, um, in some cases are opposed to increasing GME requirements and opposed to decreasing residency spots because Medical schools need a place to put their graduates. You know, it, it looks good for medical yeah. schools to have a 100% or close to it um, first time match rate. So there are some kind of organizational politics to take into account. But again, the ACGME is focused on quality and patient protection. So the more data we have, I think the better off we'll be. Got it. And there's been a little bit of back and forth on the MDDO dynamic. Are the regulations of DO-based residencies, are they different or is this all under the ACGME? Um, my understanding is that since um, we kind of have joined those together um, here within the last few years, that they're, they're under the same requirements. Yeah, but yeah, this well. does in intersect with DO and IMG interests a little differently. I think programs that, as to speak to another solution, I mean programs that in the past didn't really consider DO or IMG applicants may have to consider right. those applicants as well. And I hope that as, as at my program, they will see that DOs are just as strong oftentimes as, as MDs. Yeah. I know my colleagues who are DOs are, are excellent physicians as well. So I think if there's any winner in this trend, it could be that those DOs are getting a shot that they might not have gotten otherwise. Got it. And one of the kind of, pushback elements is the newer residencies. Um, there, there are actually two residencies affiliated with where I work right now that are fairly new. It, a lot of people put a lot of their heart and soul and time into creating those new residencies. How has EMRA interacted with those folks who, if a residency were to close, those would be the early ones? Yeah, so 
It's always really difficult to think about a residency closing um, and to have people displaced and things like that. For one thing, typically if a residency closes, they will usually phase out the residency. So they will just not take mm -hmm. applicants for the following year, but the ones that were matched into the program can usually complete their closure. When we see residents that are completely uprooted, that's more often because as in the Hahnemann closure, um, the whole hospital had to close. So usually there are ways to support residents um, better than what was seen at like the Hahnemann closure. But it is difficult um, to think about these programs closing. Let's let's dig into the more like or a likely reason for those closures. Um, the, the way that anesthesia or, or the main force that that led to a lot of anesthesia programs closing in the in the 1990s is just that a there was a dramatic decrease in medical students going into anesthesia about 50 percent decrease in medical school medical student enrollment in anesthesia programs and if there aren't residents then you don't get uh, funding from through through Medicare dollars and and programs end up closing that way. Can you talk a little bit more about what what it would look like if next year uh, even fewer medical students applied to emergency medicine? Yeah. I mean, we probably will see some classes and, and maybe some entire programs go completely unfilled. And those programs are going to kind of have to suffer the consequence. I, I mean, I it's really difficult to say because these are not just brand new programs. Mm -hmm. Um, I know CORD is really focused on supporting all programs. So though they haven't come out and said, stop opening new programs, stop expanding existing programs, um, they're really focused on trying to give those programs as much support as possible. Whenever it comes to individual residents, we certainly try to um, get them connected to individual resources as well. But those usually are CORD's resources because they are the definitive source on advising for um, applicants to emergency medicine. So that's what we'll continue to do. We'll try to get them connected with mentors and resources that have been vetted by the Council of Residency Directors and EM. Uh, I don't want to talk too much about this because this could be its own podcast, but what's your sense of the role of the PAs and nurse practitioners in in this match conversation? I think it has a huge role in the workforce projections. So medical students are aware that there's likely to be a surplus of EM physicians. And this is very tied into um, scope of practice concerns, kind of edging out emergency physicians as um, providing care directly to patients. Medical students are aware of that they have expressed that they don't want it to be the only thing we focus on because it's also, it's not just at the organizational and state law level. It also is the responsibility of each of us to continue recruiting students, showing them what we love about the specialty and um, also showing them the ways that we are fighting against this expansion of, of scope creep. So that's what we're going to try to continue to do is focus on solutions and show them that we do care about this, but it also doesn't mean the end mm -hmm. for all the things that we loved about emergency medicine and why we chose this specialty. So I, I really like how you finished your um, your position statement uh, or reaction to the 2023 match. You're, our goal is to keep the quality of our training high, regardless of the age or business model of our EDs. 
And as individuals, we can start today by celebrating the wins, the gratification in in resuscitating a patient in distress, the accomplishment that comes from improving care in your emergency department, the hope that a new class of emergency medicine physicians bring, and the, the ability to take care of anyone, anything, anytime. These wins are what drew us to emergency medicine and what will draw draw in the next class of residents. So what what further advice would you have to a to a medical student who's on the fence about going into emergency medicine? I mean, I know when I started my third year EM clerkship, I was not really considering emergency medicine. I didn't think that I was hardcore enough to go into this specialty. But yeah, I ju- it just took too. one resident telling me like this specialty is incredibly cool. It's um, it allows us to become the experts in the undifferentiated patient. We're the expert resuscitationists. Um, and you get to see a different thing every time you walk in through the door. So I think continuing to celebrate that. And then as that resident did also telling me um, that I could be a great emergency medicine physician. I mean, I think especially people that are underrepresented in medicine need to be um, told that mm. this specialty has a place for you and really to show them what we love about it. Not just to give med students the easy cases or relegate them to being a scribe, but really trying to show them (laughs) what we love about it. Um, And that's not just for the med students that are the superstars and have known they wanted to be an ER doctor since they were 10 years old. I mean, we have to widen the net now because fewer med students are considering EM and might be scared off by workforce projections and take those interactions with med students to be our opportunity to set the record straight and show them that a lot of people um, still love this work. And yeah, there are workforce concerns. Um, You may not be able to get that perfect job that you want right out of residency in the heart of Denver, in the coolest neighborhood and all this stuff. But if you have additional training or if you are open to serving rural patients that really need you um, or working for an underserved patient population, then this specialty can still be for you. And um, I just don't want that to be lost in (laughs) sometimes this doom and gloom. And, um, you know, I think really concerns about our our match process. And I also don't want to be lost how excited we are to have this new class of emergency medicine residents coming in. I mean, they are so thrilled to have matched into their dream specialty. And um, I really want to celebrate them and all of our new members, too, because I know last year we had our, um, in the 2022 match, we had what was called, you know, the least competitive match yet because we had 219 unfilled spots. And yet that class of of interns that came into the University of Kentucky Emergency Medicine Program are so Mm -hmm. strong. They're so smart. They have been hitting the ground running since day one. And they're really just humble servants of their patients. And so I'm thrilled to see what the the next class of emergency medicine residents brings to the table. And I think the more we can continue to celebrate that and not sour their joy at matching into the best specialty in medicine, I think the better. Yeah, let's uh, dig in a little bit more about the future. What are the things that you're most excited about um, or make you optimistic about the future of emergency medicine? I think... um, EMRA has been looking at some really interesting solutions. So um, I think there's not one magic bullet for this. 
It's going to be a patchwork of solutions. And the things that Imra is doing is, for one thing, we are sponsoring scholarships to this independent masterclass that ASEP has put together. So it basically teaches you to run a democratic group. We want more physician Mm. ownership um, of democratic groups. I think it would be great if, you know, we have residents that graduate into a workforce that is very funded by private equity and corporate forces in emergency medicine, and then gradually just take back ownership of the emergency department, you know, because we want we want re- these residents today who are passionate about physician leadership and passionate about patient-centered care to go on to the administrative roles, chair roles, um, C-suite roles, so that we can keep patients at the center of the practice of what we do. So um, we're interested in supporting democratic groups that way. And I think we're also looking at things like unionization. This raises questions about why it's so Mm. cheap to staff an emergency department with 30 residents. Like, should it be that cheap? Should we be like, um, you know, working for almost minimum wage in our emergency departments? Um, I think not. And so um, in response to some policy that was submitted to our representative council last year, we've started providing a lot of unionization education and convened a task force on unionization that has, it's an uh, Immer task force with representatives from other um, emergency medicine residency uh, associations. And so so we're, we're interested in kind of empowering residents at the resident level afterwards um, to address workforce issues um, as attendings and fellows. Mm-hmm. And also our medical students. Um, we're very invested in improving the, value of EMRA membership for our medical student members. And that means um, leadership opportunities, educational resources, and getting them involved in advocacy at a really early stage. We have the Leadership and Advocacy Conference coming up, and I know there will be medical students and residents there who are meeting face-to-face with their congresspeople to talk about ED boarding. So we're just really trying to spread that spirit of being solution oriented and realistic, but also optimistic to all of our members, because to me, that's the heart of what Imra does best. That's great. Um, yeah. Imra is a lot more than the antibiotics guy. <laughs> I love it. Hey, but we love our antibiotics guy. <laughs> Very proud <laughs> of that. Really good. So a few concluding questions. Um, who's someone in your residency or in your emergency department that you want to highlight as a as a superstar? And I'm not going to allow you to say Ryan Stanton because <laughs> I'll be very jealous as a fellow podcaster. Um, Ryan's awesome. Great dude. Um, actually, I've been on his uh, podcast ASAP Frontline this week too. Great person. But I think if I think about someone who has addressed these issues that we've talked about today, one of our EM physicians is our EM attendings is Daniel Moore. So um, he mm. has um, a bit of a business background as well. He got his MBA while he was a practicing EM faculty at my in my department, and started our pit system. So he provided like a financial proof of concept that this is good for patients. It's good for the mm. hospital. And it really has alleviated a lot of congestion where patients were just waiting for hours in the in the waiting room without even being triaged by a physician. And so getting the workup started for them allows them to get through quicker and it's better for patients and better for the hospital. And now um, that's been so effective, as has his work been in like public health advocacy with some things like 
doing hep C testing for patients, um, starting Hmm. to get them plugged into addiction medicine. So really just kind of seeing the department on the whole and how we can help patients flow through it better and really help them long-term. Now he's moved on to the C-suite of our hospital. Um, And I love having someone who's such a smart advocate and who can make these good things for patients make business sense in hospital leadership. So that's the kind of leader that I think is going to really like revolutionize the way we do emergency medicine and be a leader in things like boarding. So that's the kind of education that we're trying to give our, our members to help them be that well-rounded physician leader. That's really inspiring. That's fantastic. Um, And one question we always ask our guests is what book or movie would you recommend to our audience? I guess I'll go with Radical Candor. It's something that I'm having the board of directors of EMRA read right now. It's not a perfect leadership book, but I do think that it challenges us to be really direct in how we talk to each other so that we can all make each other better, especially at thinking about like medical student mentorship, medical student feedback, like helping them reach their fullest Mm -hmm. potential by being direct and straightforward um, while also doing it in a kind of loving and supportive way. But in medicine, we can be very um, polite to people's faces in ways that don't really help them in the long term. And especially with issues like making a medical student reach their fullest potential or addressing these massive issues that are all intersecting in the match, we need to be able to be candid with each other and really straightforward. Yeah, I really, I really like that framework because it's not, it, the, the title makes you think it's, oh, just kind of be that, that Brutally stereotypical honest. surgeon, just say what's on your, on your mind. If you think something's terrible, you tell them it's terrible. That's not what she's saying. What she's saying is be honest, but also come from a caring person-centered um, perspective. And both of those things are, are important. So I totally agree. Yeah, with the, the more you book. know someone, the more you have demonstrated that you care about them, the more direct that you can be. And I have seen that so much um, with a lot of my colleagues in EMRA and at my program. So I think that's probably what I would recommend. Awesome. And if folks are inspired by this, uh, by your work or by this uh, interview, how can how can our listeners uh, reach you? Well, I'm available on Twitter at Dr. Adkins Murphy. I'm more active on Instagram <laughs> at um, Jess Adkins Murphy MD. So I'd love to connect with people there. Or you can email me at president at emra.org. Well, Dr. Murphy, you've been fantastic. Thanks for your leadership with EMRA. Um, these are challenging times, and, and I'm very glad that you're at the helm to really lead us into the future of emergency medicine. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Emergency Medicine Workforce Podcast. If you have feedback for us or just have some thoughts on this episode, hit us up on social media at EM Workforce. And don't forget to subscribe now to this podcast on your favorite podcast app or at emergencymedicineworkforce.com. This podcast is edited and produced by EarFluence. I'm Leon Edelman, and if you're in the emergency medicine trenches, I appreciate all of the work that you do. We'll see you again soon with the next episode.